from Infinite Guest, this is Top Score, a conversation with composers who write music for video games. I'm Emily Reese. Little bit of background about this one. Homeworld, that's the name of the game, came out in 1999. It's a real-time strategy game set in space. Real-time strategy means players aren't waiting for each other to take turns like you would think in a board game. Instead, players are fighting in these huge battles in space, controlling their own fleets of ships, trying to eliminate the competition, who's trying to do the exact same thing. All of this happening in real time. Homeworld has an interesting story. It was originally made by a company called Relic Entertainment. Another company, THQ, bought Relic, And when THQ went bankrupt in 2012, another developer named Gearbox Software stepped in and bought Homeworld and decided to remake the game. Homeworld Remastered came out in February. Composer Paul Rusquet wrote the original music in 1999 and remastered it for the new release. It is a game that was made relative to the industry quite a, quite a long time ago. And it's, it's unique in the sense that it took a genre, the real-time strategy genre, and moved it into 3D space. So it was the first game to really realize that in a meaningful way. And this is a spaceship game, right? There's you You have a fleet and you fly around space and you kill each other and hoard resources and things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that. those are the conventions of real-time strategy. So it's um, the core of it is that uh, the mechanics of building ever-larger fleets and taking on ever-larger enemies, you know, and, and great amounts of destruction happen. You know, in there, amongst all that, is this story and this narrative presentation that uh, made Homeworld kind of unique because with real-time strategy, up until then, no one had really kind of made a compelling narrative within the genre. Was that narrative initially a part of the discussion of the game from the very beginning, or was that added at a later time? How the original one was made back in 1999, you know, it was the first product that Relic Entertainment had made. It was the first game that Studio X worked on. What actually happened was around January of 1999, uh, the publisher, you know, they were playing the game and they were basically like, this thing needs a campaign, this thing needs a single player mode. And basically what happened was the story which was in place and there and there was a lot of writing about the lore and fiction and, you know, there were several writers that contributed to that universe and, and the story that's within that universe. But in, in January of 1999, we were 
you know, all sort of put under the pressure of like the publisher wanted that story to be told in a way that was like um, compelling way that would just, you know, help the um, the game player get through these series of missions. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, the, the single player script was born out of that discussion. And I don't think there was any necessarily high vision for it. It was more like, you know, oh my God, the publisher just said this and we need to get a narrative happening. So the game initially came out in 1999. How much music did you write and what type of sound were you wanting to achieve? It kind of came out of nowhere, really, because it really didn't get any sort of direction from Relic and and they really sort of left me up to my own devices, which turned out to be just like an awesome thing. You know, technology was such that I was using a MIDI-only sequencer. So there was, you know, all the music was mixed down. Like I had a, a, you know, a number of outboard modules, like synths and samplers all tied together. So it was that old school kind of, the music actually existed as a MIDI performance that's mixed down to dat tape. Because, (laughs) you you know, because with a MIDI only sequencer, there's no audio. There's just basically MIDI signals going out and triggering events on these external modules. So that's sort of the framework in which the music was created. And uh, it was kind of like they they really allowed me to just explore maybe a more unconventional sounding score, like in the sense that we were blending a number of different influences together in a way that just in conjunction with the really unique art approach seemed to click. And it seemed to click for a number of people Hence, this is why it, it came back, I guess, because it was a unique enough combination of things that, that really hit a chord with a lot of people. And yeah, so, so it's, it, it is unique in that way because it would, there was a lot of firsts that, that happened with that game. Tell me about the influences for you musically and describe, if you will, what the music sounds like. There's obviously a, a world music influence in the sense of tribal drums and um, some East Indian influences. But a large component of it is also just electroacoustic music in a way, because, you know, in the tradition of like, you know, Brian Eno ambient, where you're creating tones and textures to create a narrative space for the, uh, the gameplay and the narrative to inhabit. So a lot of a lot of the music was created pretty much from a utility standpoint. Like I went with ambient for a lot of the gameplay just because it it was there was something that happened when when you put a particular ambient against one of the backgrounds.
it's really interesting because it's it's the articulation of space. Like, what do you put in a vacuum? <laughs> you know, and you have to think of it that way because you have these little objects like the ships floating around in this vacuum. And then you have this amazing painted, lush, colorful backdrop, which is the background. And then the music kind of has to float in between that background and all of your floating ships in a way that kind of unifies the environment together and helps someone understand emotionally what, what what's happening in terms of the the progress of the um, not only the narrative arc but also the the uh, the game design. So when that narrative arc became prevalent and became an issue, let's say, did that change your mus- any of your music choices? I remember there was a couple key breakthroughs where Aaron Daly, one of the um, one of the lead game designers, uh, was over at the studio, and at that point, it was like nothing had really been thought out. So we were just like he was sitting in the studio, and I had you know one of the dat tapes with one of the mixes on it and um, had the game there and I pressed the dat tape and go see look what happens and out of that discussion it was like we could just play Adagio for Strings in Mission 3 I forget who came up with the idea or how it came about but it was that literally like yeah we should try that so so we played because we had that uh, choral version that we used for the uh, the opening and it was uh, I think it was about 7 minutes long that version and it was like, why don't we just put it into Mission 3? Like, <laughs> you, you know, because it, it was like this music is just sitting here. And then we put it in. And then it was like, it was one of those kind of, you know, how that mission starts where it's like, everything's gone. Karak is burning. And, the you know, and the, the choir music is going and the whole planet is burning. And, and it was just like, okay, I think that's working. <laughs> you couldn't have done that five years before if, if Homeworld had been made in, like, 1995, right? That, that wouldn't have probably been a possibility. It, well, you know, interestingly enough, like, I, I started in the gaming industry in 94. Right out of college, it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I had actually, actually, I dropped out of music school to take that job. Nice. <laughs> I, I bet was, there are about eight million music students wishing they could do the same thing. <laughs> it, well, it was a really, it was a different sort of time because how I got into the industry was I was roommates with a guy that played guitar in a band that also the bass player was the original audio programmer at Radical Entertainment. <laughs> Wow. So literally, that's how I got my, like, there's, obviously there's more to the story than that. But that's, that's how the connection to me even getting introduced to the industry. It just got re-released, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you do? Did you redo all the music? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I remastered it in the sense that, well, there's this whole other story that's... <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Involved with this, which is, I sort of touched on it earlier, which was I started Studio X as a direct result of getting the Homeworld contract. 
And so I had a run um, between 1999 and 2003 where we did all the audio for uh, Homeworld 1, Homeworld Cataclysm, which was released in 2000, and then Homeworld 2 that was released in 2003. archived all of those productions in in the sense that all the Pro Tools sessions, all the music sessions, all the source data had you been had backed up. Yeah, I wow. basically, there was so much energy that had gone into those games. And plus, you know, it's like a studio. You have to back stuff up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was interesting in the sense that because I had all of the data in raw, uncompressed form, and also because I uh, was responsible for creating that data. It was just such an easy fit to work with Gearbox because it was the second time around. It was the ultimate Groundhog Day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> because I had all this data, and when Gearbox got the assets from the auction, what turned out was they only got retail release assets, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but the auction, we're talking about THQ dissolving their assets and putting that on auction, and right, and Homeworld was a part of that. Yeah, correct. That's a long time for something to be, in terms of like the data, because Relic had moved offices like three times. So, so in some ways, Gearbox had to reconnect with a lot of the guys that basically created the stuff in the first place, because... There was a lot to figure out in terms of, you know, how do we reboot this thing with the fidelity that is required, you know, in, in 2015. Given that there really is not just a gamer these days, I mean, gamers can, as we know, play so many different types of games and really maybe not even be able to relate to each other on some things. So how did the team decide that, that this was a good time to try to revisit Homeworld and, and give it another go? I think it's one of those chain of events where an opportunity arises and it's kind of amazing that it's behind, like the whole project is done and it's shipped in, in a lot of ways because it's like, what just happened? So I don't, I don't think there, I don't, you know, it, it just doesn't seem to me that there, like it was a planned orchestrated thing. Like it was a series of events that happened that were triggered because THQ went bankrupt.
I mean, I, I can't imagine that you had to think twice about going back to it. It was probably the strangest thing that could ever happen because you're working on material that you did like 15 years ago and finding out not only what you did, but like how do you move this into a form that's going to be, you know, digestible for a, a contemporary audience. And in a lot of ways, the surprising thing was if you read reviews and whatnot, one of the things that comes up is that Homeworld is timeless. So it doesn't feel like, and, you know, people make that comment that it doesn't feel like a game that was released 15 years ago. It feels like a game that was released today. And so, I mean, what makes that is is kind of, I guess, born out of the sort of the original creative vision for it, which was that, you know, just brilliantly executed art style. And, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, you kind of think back to those days and it was uh it was kind of like the the homeworld team just was a group of people that were quite young at that time and and it all like everyone just kind of came together and created this thing I mean, how did you know what sci-fi sounded like? To you, I guess. I mean, I suppose it's subjective, but... There's basically two schools of sci-fi. I mean, there's probably more, but I mean, the two main, I think, pillars that you can go down is John Williams and full orchestral, you know, almost Wagnerian in approach. And um, the other one is is Vangelis with Blade Runner. And I'm obviously heavily influenced and drawn towards that sound where you're combining, you know, synthesizers and electronic instruments with uh, a world music influence. So there's there's one track in Blade Runner where Decker is it's right when he's going up to to Sebastian's apartment. And it's that hallway scene and the blimp is going over and there's this, I forget the name of the track, but, you know, it's this really heavy synth chord with this sort of Eastern sounding singing over top. And I, I, I remember, I, I think Blade Runner came out in 82, but I remember the first time I heard that. That was just, to me, that was like, it was, you know, when you think about it, it's like, okay, 1982, Empire Strikes Back and and Blade Runner came out at the same time. And, and you have these two visions of science fiction. So I remember sitting in the, um, we had sort of a, a game room at Radical Entertainment and they had the first blue PlayStation that came over from uh, Japan because the PlayStation was released eight months before North America. And I think that this was, it must have been like spring of 96 or something like that. And uh, it was it was the first version of uh, Ridge Racer. And it was basically streaming 
uh, CD tracks off the disc while you're playing the game. And us coming out of like Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo, it was like, oh my God, now the entire history of the recording industry is now available. Okay, that was one of those mu- those moments where you, where you you see the future and you go, oh, okay, I'm I'm here right at the beginning of this future, and and this is going to get really interesting. When that shift happened, there was all of a sudden an expectation that everything should either be, you know, some kind of pre-recorded licensed pop song or some kind of giant orchestral film score. I mean, do you think that anything got lost in that transition? I recently watched a uh, quite a lengthy documentary about the early days of Hollywood from 1905 up into about 1930. And all of the changes that happened in film, like over a pretty compressed period of time, because when you think, you know, the first studio started in basically around 1905, and then by 1930, and that's basically, you know, the advent of sound. For use as part of a talking picture, the sound to accompany the photographed action must be recorded for reproduction when the picture is shown and how sound impacted the industry and actually really altered the way that film was done. Some people made the transition and some people didn't. It's sort of like, uh, I just kind of, in some ways, in terms of an analogy, those early days of video game was, you know, sort of similar to those early days of of silent film, like, you know, 1907, where there, you know, it's interesting because one of the documentaries went on about film directors and they were either like like a truck driver or a lawyer or <laughs> like there was there was like basically no precedent. And, you know, some people came from from the stage tradition like Broadway, but literally it was like that. So, I mean, starting in the industry in the early 90s, it was sort of literally that kind of, OK, we're, we're just going to make it up as we go along because there's no precedent. So I've always kind of felt that, um, you know, even with all the the dramatic changes that have happened in the industry, creativity is kind of like a taskmaster. It constantly strives and evolves. And, you know, you you, uh, like I've had enough history in the industry to sort of see all of the different changes uh, that have gone on technically. Like Homeworld is kind of an example of this with a game that, you know, came out in 1999, and now you can, you know, play this thing at 4K. Thank you so much, Paul. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it was the same likewise. Thanks for listening to Top Score from Infinite Guest. You can learn more about Homeworld's composer Paul Rusquet and see a full playlist from this episode at infiniteguest.org. 
Top Score's production assistant is Pierce Huxtable, and Mark Hintz mixes each episode. Top Score is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. You can follow Top Score on Twitter and Facebook at Top Score Podcast. That's Top Score. I'm Emily Reese. Emily Reese.